Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. again, and welcome to the Valkyrie Underground. Thank you so much for joining me, your host, Urban Jungle Girl, on the Midas Right Network at MidasRight.net. Today is Monday, October 27, 2014. Between the live podcast, Midas Right streams 24 hours a day. Some of the really best material, white racialist material and music out there, great music too. Monday is the Valkyrie Underground with me, Tuesday is Berserker Bastion with Ruthless Rob. 
Wednesday is Strategy Session with Norman and My Violent Heart. Thursday is the Midas Right Power Hour with Bill Rise. And Sunday is Open Lines. Tonight, I'll be covering the fourth installment, Part 4, of Civil War II by Thomas Chittam. And uh, I think I'll probably need one more session. I hope just one more session to finish it. Uh, but before I start the reading tonight, I wanted to talk about my day a little bit. Just something that uh, well, I was waiting in a waiting room, and the television was on. And a show came on. I think it was called The Talk. It's something like The View. And they were talking about a woman who wrote a letter to some newspaper somewhere about Halloween and how she lives in a nice neighborhood. They didn't say white, or of course they wouldn't say that. But she said that in the past few years, carloads of people from uh, in neighborhoods that she didn't know where they came from would come by the just by the truckloads. And she was very uncomfortable about that. Well, they went on, these, uh, there were a group of them, a big black nigger and uh, some bunch of white women <laughs> and a gay guy excoriating this woman uh, for being a witch. They called her a witch and many other names. And I, you know, I started thinking about that only because it's October the 27th. Halloween is coming. I think Halloween is Friday night. Also, something else that's coming is the announcement that police officer in Ferguson, Missouri, is probably not going to be persecuted as opposed to prosecuted. Uh, and so they're gearing up for whatever they're going to do. I think it's interesting that it's going to looks like it's going to coincide with Halloween. But anyway, I found something that I wanted to read that I thought was interesting, and it's uh, the manufacturing of dissent, the ruling class's Saul Alinsky strategy in Ferguson, Missouri. The past and much-anticipated future riots in Ferguson, Missouri aren't spontaneous civil disorder, They are an example of how the U.S. is governed in the multicultural post-American age. Undeterred by the Trayvon Martin farce, the mainstream media, professional racial activists, and Obama's Justice Department are implacably committed to the story that police officer Darren Wilson murdered, quote, gentle giant Michael Brown, regardless of the facts. And the riots widely predicted if Darren Wilson isn't indicted, are less a protest against police misconduct than a ginned-up attempt to ensure black voter turnout. It's not a protest against the system. It's the system working as designed. We're certainly getting enough advance notice of the riots. Michael Brown's aunt is promising that Officer Wilson will, quote, feel to see the wrath of God's vengeance come in a mighty way, just as he promised all who do evil in his sight, end quote. Brown's aunt warns Officer Wilson will feel the wrath of God's vengeance, CBS St. Louis, October 22nd. Oddly enough, the usual suspects eager to mock Christianity when it is expressed by white conservatives seem silent about these Westboro Baptist-type promises of divine retribution. Protesters are vowing that if there is not an indictment, quote, all hell is going to break loose, end quote. This includes professional racial profiteers like Amy Hunter, racial justice director of the YWCA St. Louis. Everybody is planning for whatever the grand jury decides. Certainly there are lots of us who are planning peaceful protests. Should he be indicted, certainly there are other people that have other ideas at hand. 
what those other ideas entail, only Ferguson small business owners can know for sure. The riots in Ferguson never really stopped. They just transitioned into a permanent campaign by extreme left activists. Quote, Ferguson October is the latest attempt by several organizations to capitalize on and continue social unrest. And these organizations are exactly what you expect, a grab bag of explicitly anti-white and anti-American groups like the new Black Panther Party in alliance with various Palestinian solidarity organizations, socialist splinter groups, and MSM-approved moderates like the NAACP. The MSM's willful blind spot is vital to this movement's success. Remember, patriotic protests are regularly sabotaged by reporters who play guilt by association, smearing protests because of the attendance of extremists. The MSM doesn't like, even to the point of playing guilt by association with no actual association. However, when it comes to anti-white or anti-American movements, the participation and even leadership of protests last summer by openly racist and anti-Semitic figures, such as Malik Shabazz of the New Black Panther Party, was calmly excused and even praised by mainstream outlets. Nor were any eyebrows raised about the sponsorship of groups like the Universal African People's Organization, which receives fawning coverage from the Nation of Islam's final call and praises the late black nationalist mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, Chokwe Lumumba, as an example to follow. These black nationalists were reinforced by out-of-town white leftists. The results were predictable. In a kind of living metaphor, screaming protesters interrupted a protest by the St. Louis Symphony with their ulations about Michael Brown. Whites who wanted to attend a baseball game suddenly found themselves confronted by screaming protesters. If they expressed anger against the people rioting in defense of looting and, and lynch mob justice, fans suddenly found themselves labeled as, quote, ugly, by clickbait-seeking pseudo-reporters. Protests have continued at sporting events, featuring black shrieking obscenities and spitting on and attacking whites. One man who tried to save an American flag that was being waved upside down was attacked. Needless to say, the MSM decided that this was simply a brawl, quote-unquote. A few days later, protesters in St. Louis decided it would be a good idea to burn the American flag. These kinds of tactics come out of Rules for Radicals, the now legendary handbook of social agitation penned by professional agitator Saul Alinsky. A great deal of Alinsky's tactics focused on disrupting the routines of white middle class by preventing whites from escaping what Paul Arthur Paul Kersey has termed the black undertow, the chronic crime and dysfunction of black communities, quote-unquote. For example, Alinsky famously suggested that a group of 100 urban blacks attend a symphony after a three-hour pre-concert dinner at which they would be fed nothing but baked beans, with obviously disruptive, flatulent consequences throughout the performance, a tactic that, quote, connected with their hatred of whitey. Alinsky also suggested blacks protest in white neighborhoods because whites were so racist that they would cave to any demands in order to keep their neighborhoods white. Of course, the reality today is that these kinds of racially driven protests pit one aggressive, unified side against an opponent that is totally unable to articulate a defense for itself or even see itself as a side at all. As Radix Michael McGregor puts it, Either way, the effect is the same. Whites will not be allowed to escape. 
The irony is that all this is happening as the martyrdom of Michael Brown is suffering complete narrative collapse. Michael Brown's blood was on Officer Wilson's gun and car door, exactly as would be expected after a desperate struggle. Black eyewitnesses reportedly support Officer Wilson's case that he acted in self-defense. Autopsy reports show Brown was not shot in the back, as was first maintained, and did not have his hands in the air. What's more, some of the protesters and even Michael Brown's family members can't keep themselves out of trouble. One Jamala Nasheed, a black Democratic state senator, was arrested in Ferguson for failure to obey police officers and refused a breathalyzer after officers smelled intoxicants. She was also carrying a 9mm pistol and ammunition, which is legal under concealed carry laws, but ironic because Nasheed usually votes against gun rights. And Michael Brown's family is providing unintentional comedy as his mother, cousin, grandmother, and several others reportedly engaged in a violent brawl over $1,400 of revenue from selling Michael Brown T-shirts. This culminated in Brown's cousin being struck in the face with a metal pipe or pole and going to the hospital. Yay. Nevertheless, the Department of Justice is doubling down on the Brown story, condemning leaks from the grand jury investigating Darren Wilson, and the fact that the prosecutor's in the grand jury may take the, quote, unusual step of not recommending a specific indictment means that the door is open for Darren Wilson to be hit with a lesser charge like involuntary manslaughter in order to satiate the mob. Furthermore, the Democratic Party is shamelessly using the Michael Brown shooting to promote black turnout. For example, in the close Georgia Senate race, the Democrats are essentially suggesting to black parents that Republicans want to shoot their children. And in what will surely delight white commuters who are forced to move away from Atlanta, protesters block traffic on the downtown connector. Needless to say, no one was arrested. The truth is that such leniency reflects the larger reality that the American political system is now utterly dependent on anti-white race baiting a media which can't be troubled to expose the massive law-breaking of the Obama regime audaciously promotes stories about white racists hunting down innocent, quote, black bodies, end quote, even though these morality plays are revealed to be a hateful lie time and time again. A vast assemblage of non-profit organizations and, quote, anti-racist campaigns survive on whipping up racial hysteria even as the supposed communities they claim to speak for merrily butcher each other in formerly American cities like Chicago. And the Democratic Party, beset by Ebola, foreign policy disasters, and voter anger at immigration lawlessness, now relies upon anti-white racism as the core of its program, memorably described by one Republican congressman as a, quote, war on whites, end quote. A real government would actually try to maintain public order and enforce the law with ruthless coercion when necessary. Unfortunately, we are ruled by racial socialism, promoting hatred against the historic American nation and demanding handouts is a feature, not a bug, of our system of government. As the late Sam Francis described, the ruling class actually benefits from social dysfunction and so there is no reason to believe this will end anytime soon. The only question is what will end first, the United States itself or the historic American nation's toleration of what has become an enemy occupation. The end of that. And what I want to say 
is that, all right, Friday's Halloween, and this is pretty interesting. So I think people should turn their lights out, (laughs) just in case. I think that would be a good idea. And screw Halloween. Anyway, here we go. Uh, Part four of Civil War II. We left off last week by talking about uh, enclaves. And we got into a little bit of uh, areas that were specifically being described. And I won't go over that, but I'll start right in where I stopped. So, there's an interesting situation developing in western Tennessee, the mainly white counties of Stewart, Benton, Houston, Dixon, Cheatham, Decatur, Perry, Hardin, Wayne, Lewis, and Lawrence, look as if they're becoming an enclave which I'll refer to as the Highway 13 Enclave. They may be blocked off for the white area to the east by the following Tennessee counties, Montgomery, Robertson, Summer, Truesdale, Davidson, Wilson, Hickman, Williamson, Rutherford, Mowry, Bedford, Giles, Marshall, and Lincoln. I'll refer to these counties as the Nashville Enclave. If the Nashville Enclave's percentage of blacks continues to grow, the Highway 13 Enclave may lose its viability. On the other hand, the Nashville Enclave may itself be surrounded and cut off from the heart of the Black Belt to the south and east. It's rather like the Oriental Game of Go, where the object is to maneuver your pieces to surround the enemy's pieces, while he is likewise trying to surround and cut off your pieces. Further east in Tennessee, the blacks of the Chattanooga Enclave apparently consisting only of the blacks of Chattanooga, appear to be in an entirely untenable situation. Their small urban enclave is at this time entirely surrounded by whites. The Chattanooga enclave set astride the intersections of railroads, the Tennessee River, and several interstate highways essential to the survival of 278-75 enclave in Alabama and the white counties of northern Georgia. It will doubtless be a priority objective in Civil War II. In the former Yugoslavia, road and rail corridors and the nearby high points that gave their possessors military dominance over these corridors were bitterly contested objectives, even the point of launching massive infantry assaults that often amounted to little more than suicide to secure them. The future black militia commander of the Chattanooga Enclave will be well advised to reach an accommodation with local white militias, preferably before the fighting breaks out, just as the cutoff of Muslim enclaves of Bahak in the northwest Bosnia reached an accommodation with the besieging Serb militias. Enclaves in Mississippi In Mississippi, the whites in DeSoto, Webster, Neshoba, Rankin, Smith, Jones, Lamar, Perry, Green, and George counties are all engulfed by the Black Belt, and no serious consideration should be given to their defense when hostilities break out. Militia commanders should consider requests to aid nearby enclaves of co-ethnics from a purely military perspective, the perspective of triage or triage. The triage system was developed by military medical personnel for treating battle casualties when their numbers do not allow full medical attention to every patient. At that point, all incoming battle wounded are placed into one of three categories. A designated medical triage officer with a marker, perhaps a grease pencil, puts a mark on the forehead of each incoming casualty. 
A large D, as in David, means delay, which indicates that the wounded soldier will probably live even if he receives no medical attention at all. They are simply set aside, perhaps with a shot of morphine, if they're lucky, and the medical treatment is delayed until the triage situation is no longer in force. An E, as in Edward, Mark, indicates that the wounded soldier is expected to die, even if he receives prompt and extensive medical attention. These terminal cases are likewise set aside without treatment. An I, as in ink, Mark, means that the wounded soldier falls into the intermediate category, that he will probably live, but if he receives prompt medical treatment, and that he will probably die if he does not. The I means immediate, and this triage category of wounded are the only ones that receive immediate and extensive medical attention. Triage logic is brutal, as in most military theory and military reality, but it cannot be argued with. The whites of southeastern Mississippi are clearly an E enclave, and they should base all expectations and preparations squarely on this big E reality. The situation in Georgia is shaping up clearly enough. There's a white enclave in southeast Georgia, I'll call the 341-84 enclave, after two primary highways that intersect in its proximate center at the town of Jessup. The 341-84 enclave includes the counties of Toombs, Jeff, Davis, oh, Jeff Davis, Appling, Wayne, Long, Bacon, Pierce, Brantley, and Camden. The 341-84 enclave fits exactly into the E category. Also, in the E category are the counties of Eccles, Berrien, Colquitt, Lee, Taylor, Peach, Pike, Fayette, Columbia, Glasscock, Effingham, and Bryan. In northern Georgia, if you draw a line from the Forsyth County northeast and a line from Cherokee County northwest, the area to the north is white. This area is not properly speaking an enclave because it adjoins with white areas in Tennessee and North Carolina. However, the Black Belt may expand north, displacing whites along the Forsyth-Dawson line, and almost the entire area will be within the range of the military of black secessionists. Enclaves in Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia, up the Atlantic seaboard to about Baltimore, the pattern is pretty well fixed. The closer to the ocean and the old tidewater plantations, the higher the percentage of blacks. Starting at the Appalachians and westward, the population is almost all white. One expects that as geographic segregation increases in the future, both regions will become increasingly monolithic as white abandon the Tidewater area. Where the two areas meet, basically in the Appalachian foothills, the front will divide the two areas. Much ethnic cleansing will take place. The whites will enjoy a decided military advantage here because they will occupy the high ground all along the front. I will make mention of one particular North Carolina county, Dare County. Any white militias in Dare County are whistling Dixie, and they had better select the short version. On a county-level demographic map, there is a snow-white mini-Rhodesia surrounded by heavily black counties. I suppose Dare County is some sort of enclave for wealthy whites, or else all this is just a misprint on the map. 
In any case, they are history. What some presently refer to as the Black Belt will define the new independent black nation. Start at Houston and draw a line along Interstate 45 up to Dallas, Fort Worth area. From there, the line pretty much follows Interstate 30 up to Little Rock, Arkansas. From Little Rock, follow Highway 67 to the small town of Newport, Arkansas. From Newport, the line runs due east to another small town in Tennessee, Covington. From Covington, the line swings around Memphis and then follows Highway 78 southeast to Birmingham, Alabama. From Birmingham, it follows Interstate 20 to Atlanta. From there, just more or less follow the Appalachian foothills up to Baltimore, Maryland, perhaps by following Interstate 85 to Greensboro, North Carolina, and then take Highway 29 the rest of the way to Baltimore. And don't forget to chop off southern Florida. That's Hispanic, and the boundary between the Black South and Hispanic Florida should be Interstate 4. Those living near the line will dispute its course, saying that it really runs 50 miles this away, or umpteen miles that away, of where I drew it. I concede that local residents obviously know more about their area than I do. This line was drawn based on current demographic patterns and trends. One is the relatively strong demographic trend of blacks returning to the South, and the growing trends of whites vacating heavily black areas in the South. At some point of increasing black population, which many demographers put at one-third of the total population, whites tend to begin to vacate the area, which increases the black portion of the population, which soon precipitates a general abandonment of the area by whites. Also, one must bear in mind the higher birth rate of blacks. The line I drew took these trends into account and thereby put the line nearer its maximum future value. Depending on when Civil War II actually breaks out, the line may be different. Hispanic Southwest Whoever conquers a free town and does not demolish it commits a great error and may expect to be ruined himself. Machiavelli From Houston, Texas, follow Route 45 to Dallas. From Dallas, follow Highway 287 all the way up to Denver, Colorado. From there, follow Interstate 25 to Albuquerque, New Mexico. From there, follow Route 40 to Barstow, California. From there, follow Highway 58 to Bakersfield, California. From there, follow Highway 99 through Fresno and up to Sacramento. Then follow Route 80 to San Francisco. That's about it, except you always have to throw in the entire Sacramento Valley up to Redding. That's Mexamerica, Atslan, New Hispania. Call it what you will, that's approximately the land the Hispanics will take back during the Reconquista according to current demographic patterns. There are numerous Anglo enclaves in this area, specifically the following Texas counties, Hamilton, Llano, Washington, and Fayette. In the Panhandle, there is a possible multiple county enclave consisting of Hartley, Oldham, Randall, Hutchison, Carson, Armstrong, Gray, and Donnelly counties. In Colorado, Fremont County appears to be shaping up as an enclave for affluent whites who deem themselves too damn good for Denver. In the vast suburb of Southern California, there will be many Anglo enclaves here and there for a while. 
the enclave problem may take care of itself to a certain extent. As Civil War II approaches, a great exodus out of surrounded enclaves will take place, causing a collapse of housing values in the Black Belt and the Hispanic Southwest. Many will lose most of the equity in their homes because of this exodus and collapse of housing values. A similar exodus of English speakers out of Quebec is now taking place. Our exodus will be worse because unlike the English speakers in Quebec, our enclaves are facing the prospect of butchery. Readers of this book who live in enclaves have fair warning, but they should not tarry in selling out and moving out. Watch for a growing mention of this tribal exodus in the media and real estate business and its impact on real estate prices. When the media picks up on it, move out immediately or it will be too late. Sell out, move out, stay alive. Chapter 14. Who thinks America will break up? Most Americans will dismiss the scenario of America breaking up as far-fetched, but others have independently developed similar lines of thought. One is Professor Martin Van Krivelt of the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, Israel. Professor Van Krivelt is arguably the world's foremost military theorist, and his works receive close attention at West Point and similar institutions worldwide. In his recent book, The Transformation of War, Professor Van Klevelt made many disturbing observations about the chronic instability of multi-ethnic societies. Here's what Professor Van Klevelt had to say about America. And bear with me because I'm hitting these sections now where uh, I had some problems with my printer but fixed them, so uh, I'll try to get through them. The United States is another large multiracial society where weapons are widely available and that has a tradition of internal violence second to none. During most of its history, abundant natural resources and open frontier and water, global expansion enabled Americans to raise their standard of living. As they did so from time to time, they fought a war in which their aggressions found an outlet. However, none of these factors any longer exist. The frontier was closed long ago. America's economic viability has been on the decline since about 1970. Partly as a result, so has its ability to dominate the rest of the world, a process that the recent eclipse of the USSR is unlikely to halt. As Americans found it took running faster and faster just to stay in place, social tensions have mounted and so has escapism. The use of drugs, President Reagan described it as our number one war. America's current economic decline must be halted, or else one day the crime that is rampant in the streets of New York and Washington, D.C. may develop into low-intensity conflict by coalescing along racial, religious, social, and political lines and run completely out of control, end quote. There you have it. That's what one of the world's foremost military theorists thinks of our country's future. Interesting, he's a Jew. Here's another mention of the approaching war in his book, The Decline and Fall of the American Empire by Gore Vidal. In due course, something on the order of the ethnic rebellions in the Soviet Union or even of the people's uprising in China will take place here. We are now in a pre-revolutionary time, hence the emphasis in the media on the breakup of the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia, or of anything other than the breakdown 
if not break up, of the United States and its economy. Here's another recent mention of Civil War II in America in a recent controversial book titled Alienation. Mr. Peter Brimlow maintained that increasing immigration, both legal and illegal, is having many negative impacts on America, including more crime, unemployment, environmental impacts, and shifting racial patterns. Here's what Mr. Brimlow had to say. In effect, by allowing its borders to vanish under this vast whirling mass of illegal immigrants, the United States is running on the edge of a demographic buzzsaw. One day, it could suddenly look down to find California or Texas cut off. End quote. Mr. Brimlow also suggested that all illegal aliens in America be rounded up and deported. In the April 1995 issue of Atlantic Monthly Magazine, Mr. Jack Miles reviewed Mr. Brimlow's book and described what happens if the federal government tried to round up and deport all the illegal aliens in Los Angeles. Such an operation could be implemented only at gunpoint, and it would be resisted in the same way. Its announcement would be a virtual declaration of civil war. End quote. What Mr. Miles is saying is that the American government can no longer enforce its own laws on its own soil without igniting a civil war, and that's simply fact. It can't because vast stretches of Southern California are no longer American, but are de facto a new nation, exactly as all the Southwest will be before 2050. We can't enforce our own laws on our own soil without igniting a civil war, what more proof of societal instability does anyone really need? Another reference to a second civil war in America occurred in the February 2, 1994, New York Post editorial of Patrick Buchanan. Here's what Mr. Buchanan said about the California Civil Rights Initiative, a ballot proposal that would have outlawed affirmative action by the state of California. Quote, It is about whether we are going to remain one country or whether there is a Bosnia in our future from the racial resentments and ethnic hatreds aired daily on radio and TV, it is clear that America is headed towards balkanization. End quote. It didn't get much attention in the American press, but both the formation of ethnic militias and in-your-face TV and radio shows preceded the outbreak of the war in the former Yugoslavia. Lawrence Hall, in his excellent news column, said this concerning the federal siege of the Montana Freeman. Clearly, the siege at Jordan represents the beginning of a fight involving brother against brother and pretends to be an uncivil war capable of ripping apart the country. In a recent edition of the U.S. News and World Report, John Leo had this to say in an essay entitled, quote, Just Say No to the New Segregation. The separatist instinct, even black yearbook, and black parents' associations at integrated schools should be fought. Those who believe this is one nation and not a large version of the former Yugoslavia ought to start undermining segregation wherever it appears. Here's a literary version of the Second World War. The April 30, 1995 issue of the Washington Post carried a short story by William Lind. Its format was a book back from the year... 2050, at a revolution that had swept America just after the turn of the century. Quote, the triumph of the recovery was marked most clearly by the burning of the Episcopal Bishop of Maine. 
She was not a particularly bad bishop. She was, in fact, quite typical of Episcopal bishops of the first quarter of the 21st century, agnostic, compulsively political and radical, and given to placing a small idol of Isis on the altar when she had the communion service. By 2037, when she was tried for heresy, convicted and burned, she had outlived her era. It's funny how clearly the American century is marked. 1865 to 1965, the first civil war made us one nation. After 1965 and another war, we disunited, deconstructed, with equal speed into blacks, whites, Hispanics, women, gays, victims, oppressors, left-handed albinos, you name it. In three decades, we covered the distance that had taken Rome three centuries to cover. As many others, Mr. Lind has noticed the ongoing transformation of America into a third world nation. New York has been called Calcutta on the Hudson by some. By the 1990s, the place had the hmm, stretched look of a third world country. The cities were ravaged by punks, beggars, and bums. Mr. Lynn's story next describes how the blacks of Newark, New Jersey, declared martial law in 2009 and began stringing up street criminals. The president sent in the National Guard. The people of Newark met the troops and begged for their help, and the soldiers either went over or went home. Washington ordered in the 82nd Airborne. The New York Air Guard painted pine tree insignias on its aircraft and threatened to bomb any federal forces approaching Newark. On May 3rd, Governor Ephraim Logan of Vermont told the legislature that the federal government no longer represented the people of the state and asked for a vote of secession. Vermont became a republic the next day. As I do, Mr. Lind draws contrast between the nature of our first and second civil wars. The first civil war was on the whole a gentlemanly affair. The second one wasn't. And it was what Lebanon or Yugoslavia saw in the 20th century. Mr. Lind also foresees the shelling of cities by artillery and the revolt in the southwest with the same results. Quote, the Reconquista drove the Angles out of Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and Southern California. The Anglos drove the Hispanics out of what was left of the American West. Blacks and Hispanics in L.A. turned on each other, but there were a lot more Hispanics. Korean Marines landed on Long Beach to get their people out. The Deep Greeners took over Oregon. If you weren't one of them, you didn't get a breathing license, and they tied a plastic bag over your head. After the Deep Greeners are overthrown, Japan takes over the Northwest and gives the people representation to the Japanese Diet. Northern California winds up as the Azanian Republic. Quote, I made Oregon look rational by comparison. The Azanian or Azanian government in Berkeley was in its final incarnation run by a coalition of radical feminists, Maoist guerrillas, and militant vegetarians. <laughs> the only crime was eating meat. The end came after Azania was overrun by animals who by law could be neither killed nor eaten. Mr. Lind has a second confederacy established by 2017 in the Old South, etc., 
except for Southern Florida. I'm on record as giving the advantage to Southern blacks. However, I will allow that the demographic transformation is not yet much advanced in the South. If a Hispanic revolt in the Southwest touches off ethnic warfare in the South before blacks and poverty drive most whites out, then a second confederacy seems the better wager. Canada breaks up and parts of it join our New England states in a new country called Victoria, modeled after the Victorian era of Britain. McGuffey's Reader becomes the standard school text. Lawyers are set to work digging potatoes and criminals who mugged on Tuesday are hung on Wednesday. Mr. Lind calls this deliberate remake of society to conform to an earlier era retro culture. Mr. Lind has a point in his prediction. In times of stress, people tend to become strongly tribal and religious. People who flock to fighting ideologies or convert current belief systems into fighting ideologies. Mr. Lind ends on an optimistic note. Eventually, things settle down, except in the southwest, where the armies of Nuva, España, are fighting the Indian-Aztec alliance. Mr. Lind is a noted military writer, was an advisor to presidential candidate Gary Hart, and is currently the director of the Free Congress Foundation. One does have to admit that the truth does have a nasty habit of unfolding as stranger than fiction, and Mr. Lynn's projections and mine may pale when held up against the actual Civil War II, which is just around the corner. This is from an article by former Secretary of State Lawrence Eagleburger, who appeared in the March 1996 National Times. Meanwhile, the global process of decentralization proceeds what is happening in Bosnia, in Kazia, Spain, and their Basques, in the UK with the Scots, is a tendency toward minimalist nationalism. This process is happening in the US as well. Here's a sign that the military is not unaware of the growing unrest in America. In an article in the January Atlantic Monthly, an article by Thomas E. Ricks reported that Air Force Colonel Charles Dunlap had written a remarkable essay whose subject was a military coup d'etat in America. The title, quote, Origins of the American Military Coup of 2012, end quote. I quote the beginning of the article. It is the year 2012. The American military has carried out a successful coup d'etat. Jailed and awaiting execution for resistance to the coup, a retired military officer awaits to an old comrade explaining how the coup came about. End quote. The article notes this remarkable treaty was entered in the National Defense University's Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Strategy Essay Competition and that this essay was selected as co-winner of said competition. Most remarkable of all, its author, Colonel Dunlap, was honored by General Colin Powell at the awards ceremony. And here's another tremor from the military in January 1996. Progressive Peter Cassidy, in an article entitled, Guess Who's the Enemy?, quoted an American publication named Tomorrow's Missions. In this publication, Lieutenant General J.H. Binford, P.A., the third, asserted that in the Army of the 1990s, quote, military forces are required to provide domestic national assistance such as internal peacekeeping and anti-drug operations 
and support of civil authorities to maintain stability in a rapidly changing America, end quote. Here's yet another indication that our military is being recast as a Soviet-style MVD internal security force. The Green Panthers are a secessionist group advocating as independent, quote, stoner's homeland, end quote, in the Pacific Northwest for marijuana users. Their publication, The Revolutionary Toker, made the head of the Office of National Drug Control Policy. The article contained this unsettling information about General McCaffrey. Quote, His doctoral thesis at the Army War College, Use of Standard Operational Planning to Quell Domestic Civil Disturbances, won him his third star. In his thesis, he applies various military scenarios within cities to suppress civil unrest. End quote. Note that the much-promoted war on drugs provides an expedient vehicle for the establishment to desensitize the military to domestic operations and to bring up the military's heavy manpower for the inevitable showdown with the urban gangs as they accelerate their ongoing transformation into political military organizations. The establishment must at all costs retain its monopoly on political and military power to realize its ultimate goal, imperial conversion, and this will ultimately require turning the military's heavy firepower on any and all who oppose that goal and monopoly. Here's another mention of civil war in America. The November 12, 1995 issue of the Boston Globe magazine had an article written by John Powers, an article titled The Splintering of America. The article cited that the usual ethnic and linguistic mess that America has become and openly asked, quote, is the United States destined to come apart as the Soviet Union did, fracturing into dozens of rival socio-cultural and political enclaves? At the end of the article, where writers usually sum up their point, a professor of ethnic studies at the University of California, Berkeley, Ron Takaki, was quoted as saying, quote, we have a double vision. We look at our diversity, and we also look at Bosnia, and we worry. The overall tendency is for establishment types to predict a crime and poverty-stricken multicultural banana republic, something like Brazil. Brazil is racked by violence, but has so far avoided massive bloodshed like Bosnia. In such a society, the establishment reckons it can endure quite nicely behind its razor wire walls and security guards. This optimistic view is based on their utter contempt for working-class whites. I'm confident they will be proven wrong, but time will tell. This is from an essay by Charles Krauthammer on November 13, 1995, issue of Time magazine. Quote, America is proceeding blithely down the path of diversity and ethnic separation. America's destination, however, is not Canada, which will find some civil way out of its dilemma. America's destination is the Balkans, end quote. Here's another mention of civil war in America in the April 10, 1995 issue of Forbes magazine. Dr. Thomas Sewell, in an article on affirmative action, said this, quote, nor do Americans need to go to the brink of civil war before repealing a policy that has produced polarization and intergroup violence in other countries, including even civil war in Sri Lanka, end quote. Here's another version of civil war in America. In the July 19, 1995 issue of the New York Post, columnist Scott McConnell 
had much to say on this subject in a column entitled, American Apocalypse, Soon? Question mark. And some of this is cut off. So, civil strife is painful, civil war dreadful beyond words. In its current direction, however, the United States, its rapidly expanding third world populations and its corporations eager to pull up stakes and transfer jobs abroad, hardly seem stable in the long run. Here's what Robert Kaplan had to say in the February 1994 issue of the Atlantic Monthly in an article entitled The Coming Anarchy. Kaplan, catch that name, Jew. Indeed, it is not clear that the United States will survive the next century in exactly its present form. Because America is a multi-ethnic society, the nation-state has always been more fragile here than in the more homogeneous societies like Germany and Japan. TikTok. Readers will note that despite all the direct and indirect references to ethnic instability and even ethnic warfare in America, one almost never comes across a simple declarative sentence something like this, quote, It is probable that America will erupt in ethnic warfare. Simple, right? Even the timid establishment press has started to admit the inevitability of a second civil war in America, as the above excerpts testify. Collectively, they cover most of the main points, a multi-ethnic society, a history of extreme internal and external violence, plenty of guns, a sinking economy, waning global power, drug gangs, urban decay, lower wages each year, massive illegal immigration, corrupt politicians, our deliberate transformation into a third world country, the growing gap between rich and poor, the formation of militias, the rejection of assimilation, the racialist affirmative action. It is instructive to note that the most explicit, accurate, clinical, and extensive of these observations were made by a foreigner, Professor Van Cleveld. Remember, he's from Israel. Americans especially, establishment white Americans, that's what he's calling him, cringe when anyone mentions the possibility of a race war in America. They do so partly out of the absurd notion that anyone who breaches the topic must be a racist who desires such conflict. By the same absurd logic, weathermen must somehow generate the hurricanes they predict. There is another unspoken reason why even the mention of this topic, or rather its explicit public mention, draws such negative reaction. The establishment, in order to manipulate public opinion, has succeeded in reducing discussions of race relations to a ritual, a ritual for which the high priests of the media and political elite have written the ceremonial script. Nothing outside the ceremonial script is tolerated. All else is heresy. The establishment has succeeded in manipulating the minds of most Americans to the point that racism means white racism exclusively. Black racism simply does not exist in establishment mythology, and any assertion that it does is immediately denounced by shrill accusations of racism. In fact, by the concoction of the racist euphemism, affirmative action, the establishment has succeeded in painting black racism as beautiful, or rather, like putting a dress on a pig. Despite the establishment's attempts to choke off debate, increasing and organized violence will eventually push the topic onto every television screen and newspaper editorial in America. 
watch for more explicit and veiled mentions of Civil War II in the press. As Civil War II draws near, they will become more frequent. In fact, at some point, public endorsement of the possibility of a second Civil War in America will become acceptable, even fashionable. Radical blacks will endorse the concept of Civil War II as a means of frightening the largesse out of white liberals and cementing black solidarity. Right-wing whites will also endorse it, some as a projection of what they desire, others because of the coming signs that it is drawing nearer. Some politically correct whites will embrace it as yet more proof of white racism, and establishment whites will use it as an excuse to increase their power and therefore the amount of money they can steal. Ultimately, the concept of Civil War II will be as much a current topic as, say, the greenhouse effect, alternative lifestyles, drugs, or the latest fad diet. One cannot fix a problem until one is aware of it. By this measure, the increased talk of Civil War II will be a positive development. It's like terrible Tommy says, worse is better. Maybe. The developing trend seems to be that liberal... Intellectuals think our conversion into an imperial system will be successful and that a civil war will either not take place or be a sputtering affair easily put down. The conservative commentators seem to be lining up behind the idea that the war will be serious and that America will probably be partitioned. These two views warrant close monitoring as they are bound to have some impact on the course of events. However, the bottom line is that events will unfold in much the same manner as they did prior to our first civil war. There was much talk of secession and civil war prior to the actual occurrence of both. However, all the talk was sufficient neither to prevent secession nor even make realistic military preparations for the conflict. Almost all those who foresaw our first civil war imagined it as an almost bloodless summer frolic. President Lincoln asked for the 90-day volunteers and the clueless, gentle folk of Washington packed picnic baskets before heading off to take in the first battle of Bull Run. Okay, Manassas for you unreconstructed rebels. Nothing indicates that our second civil war will develop any differently. Even those who eventually concede Civil War II's inevitability will envision it as a summer of riots put down by the National Guard and its underlying causes permanently uprooted by some anti-poverty programs and midnight basketball. No, the tribal war drums are beating too loudly for that. It will last years, kill millions, and shatter America into starving tribal enclaves. Chapter 15 the Bloody Lessons of Tribal Europe. When will Civil War II actually erupt? There is no scientific formula or mathematical equation that will give us the date. Instead, we must turn our attention to the demographic forces propelling us toward Civil War II, our ongoing transformation from a stable, mono-ethnic nation into an unstable, multi-ethnic empire. Not all history can be explained by this single engine of demographic transformation. Other factors can and do decide the boundaries and fates of empires and nations. However, the concept of nationality has been the dominant historical feature, at least since the Industrial Revolution. 
the more monoethnic a nation is, the less chance a secondary tribe will break off and form a new nation or unite with their co-ethnics as an adjunct nation. The more monoethnic a nation is, the less likely a neighboring country will try to carve off a slice inhabited by its co-ethnics as Nazi Germany seized the Sudetenland of Czechoslovakia. I, I said that wrong. The more monoethnic a nation is, the more likely its citizens will unite and fight foreign invaders, thus again increasing the chances of territorial integrity. To be sure, ethnic tensions and even genocide can and do occur in relatively monoethnic nations such as, oh dear, such as the, <laughs> the genocide of the Jews and others in Germany. However, it is the internal stability and territorial integrity of nations that is the focus of our concern. I hope he learned more things since he wrote this book. The more usual case is that a secondary tribe dominant in one region breaks off and forms a new nation. Nationalism, tribalism if you please, is the relentless historical force that has shaped the current map of Europe. The trend of imperial armies has also changed the map of Europe, but empires are like great ships. They sunk, they remain sunk. Tribal-based nations, on the other hand, are historically buoyant. Pushed under, they resurface time and time again. This view of history requires no elaborate intellectual defense. Consider world maps. They depict the world as their makers perceive it. All the globe, excepting the uninhabited oceans and the uninhabited polar ice caps, is literally divided up and colored as this nation or that. Nationality is plainly what we consider of greatest significance when we perceive our world, not the watersheds of great rivers, vast climate zones, or ranges of towering mountains. It is not so much the earth we are mapping, but rather the very synapses of our own minds. Europe is that ever-troubled region from whence we got our nations of culture, politics, and religion, and is therefore of particular interest to us. Its pattern on the map may as well be lit up in neon lights. The nations of Europe are clearly tribal. Smaller tribes coalesced into super-tribes, and nations came into being. The dominant tribe in every nation speaks a common language usually unique to them and its members, mutually recognize each other as co-nationals. Uh, consider Table 3A. There are several wars boiling or simmering in Europe. Other European nations are occupied by foreign or UN troops. Some are vassal states of a mightier neighbor. Let's make an objective examination of these troubled countries to see if we can find any common underlying reasons for their misfortunes. And this is a pretty extensive map, and so I am going to have to skip that. For the purposes of this analysis of European conflicts, a civil war shall be defined as an active conflict or armed standoff between two armed groups or full-time combatants organized in permanent military formations, each of which controls territory. A guerrilla war shall be defined as the same as a civil war excepting that the guerrillas' formations do not permanently control inhabited territory but exist in bands continuously on the run or in hiding. A terrorist war shall be defined 
as ongoing violence such as riots, bombings, and assassinations, whose perpetrators are not organized in permanent military formations and who do not control any territory. Now let's examine the nations that have some sort of conflict listed in the extreme right column of Table 3A, Armenia. Armenia has been at war since 1989, assisting secessionist Armenian ethnics in the Nagorno-Karabakh region of the neighboring country of Azerbaijan. The Azerbaijani army was defeated. The secessionist Armenians of the Nagorno-Karabakh have achieved their goal of reunion with Armenia proper, and a tense ceasefire is now in effect. A ceasefire which will not last a second beyond when the Azerbaijanians re-equip their battered army. Russian ethnics compose 2% of Armenia's population, and they have not been forgotten by Mother Russia. Russian troops are still stationed in Armenia, despite Armenia becoming independent in 1990, and Armenia is now a vassal state of Russia. When Russia says frog, Armenia jumps. Armenia's involvement in its external war was caused by ethnic Armenians living outside its borders, and the presence of foreign troops on her soil was caused in part by foreign ethnics residing within Armenia's borders. The underlying cause of Armenia's difficulties is clearly ethnic in nature. Bosnia. Bosnia is currently fighting a civil war within its borders against secessionist ethnic Serbs and the usual Serb mass butchery and rape. The civil war in Bosnia is clearly ethnic in nature. Croatia. Croatia is currently fighting a civil war within its borders against ethnic Serbs who slaughtered and raped Croatians and then set up their own nation on Croatian soil. The civil war in Croatia is clearly ethnic in nature. France. France has two terrorist low-intensity conflicts going on within its borders, one with the Basques and on the other island of Corsica, legally a part of France, Both conflicts involve unassimilated tribal groups, thus both are ethnic in nature. Both involve groups that are concentrated in one area. Corsica, it should be noted, is an island separate from continental France, much like the relation of the U.S. to Puerto Rico, where we also see ongoing separatist tendencies. Georgia Georgia had an ethnically-based civil war in 1992 that still sputters on today. As this chapter was being prepared, Persons Unknown attempted to kill the leader of Georgia, Edward A. Shavardanats, with a car bomb on August 29, 1995. Suspects include followers of the first president of Georgia, a Mr. Gamsakrudia, who committed suicide after he was ousted as a Shavernandez-backed coup. Another suspect is Mr. Iasuliani, a former bank robber and former ally of Shervenandez, and currently heads up a 5,000-man private army known as the, I think this is right, Makia Doroni. Georgian for Knights, a New York Times article of August 30, 1995, stated that Georgia, quote, remains a largely lawless, corrupt country dominated by armed gangs. The Times quoted human rights groups as saying that Georgian security forces regularly use torture and intimidation. How did Georgia come to this sorry state of coups 
car bombs, corruption, lawlessness, assassination, torture, and bank robbers running private armies. When the Soviet Union broke up, Georgia became independent. Almost immediately, two internal minorities, the Abkhazians and the Ascensions, declared independence for their slices of Georgia and civil war erupted. The Russians intervened in order to look after the interests of 370,000 ethnic Russians in Georgia, or 7% of Georgia's population, and to generally reduce Georgia to a vassal state. Today, although the civil war sputters on, the rebellious minorities have basically achieved autonomy for their regions, and Russian troops occupy much of Georgia. Georgia is an occupied vassal state of Russia. Georgia's difficulties are clearly ethnic in nature. Macedonia. Macedonia currently has UN troops stationed within its border in a symbolic attempt to forestall ethnic conflict. The general opinion has it that civil war between the majority Christian Slavs and the minority Albanian Muslims is not inevitable, but may break out at any time. Macedonia's difficulties are clearly ethnic in nature. Moldova. Moldova became independent in 1991 when the old USSR broke up. Ethnic Russians residing in the Transdenister region of Moldova seized control of that region in 1992 in a civil war in which 500 died. The ethnic Russians were aided by Russian Cossacks that poured into Moldova, and then Russian troops occupied the Transdenister region of Moldova to protect Russian ethnics living there. Facing impossible odds in 1994, the Moldovan people voted in a government of former communists that essentially granted autonomy to the Russians of the Transdenister region. The Transdenister region of Moldova is currently occupied by Russian troops, and Moldova is a vassal state of Russia that responds as expected when Russia says frog. The civil war in Moldova, its reduction to a vassal state, and its ongoing occupation by foreign troops are difficulties that are clearly ethnic in origin. Russia. Russia is currently fighting a civil war within its borders against its own nominal citizens who are ethnic Chechens and Muslims. The civil war in Russia is clearly tribal in nature. Serbia. Serbia is an economically devastated police state that is currently entangled in both internal and external tribal conflicts. Serbia constantly terrorizes its internal minorities, chiefly Muslims. Serbia is also caught up in an external ethnic war. Many Serbian men are fighting covertly in Bosnia and Croatia alongside ethnic Serbs resident in those countries. If no Serbs lived in Bosnia or Croatia, Serbia would not be at war. Serbia is suffering through a devastating UN economic boycott because of its assistance to ethnic Serbs living outside its borders. Serbia is currently home to many psychotic ex-soldiers who have committed unspeakable crimes during the ethnic cleansing campaigns in Croatia and Bosnia. Serbia's problems, however self-inflicted, are clearly tribal in origin. Spain Spain is currently fighting a small but nasty secessionist terrorist campaign mounted by one of its minority nationalists, the Basques. It appears that the Spanish security forces have the Basques on the ropes, but be that as it may, the terrorist secessionist campaign in Spain is clearly ethnic in nature.
the United Kingdom. The UK is fighting a secessionist movement in Northern Ireland against Irish nationals who seek reunion with Ireland. Currently, there is a shaky ceasefire punctuated by riots and other unpleasantries. The case can be made that the fighting in Northern Ireland is either a terrorist war or a guerrilla war. In either case, the secessionist campaign in the not-so-United Kingdom is clearly tribal in nature. All of these unfortunate countries' problems are mainly or partly ethnic in nature, but that's only half the picture. In Table 3A, these conflicts seem to be randomly distributed because the countries are listed alphabetically. Now consider Table 3B, where the countries are listed by the percentage of the dominant ethnic group. The countries on the uppermost portion of the list are free of serious conflict, but about half of the countries on the bottom portion are plagued by war, terrorism, and occupation by foreign armies. The countries at the very top of the list are almost purely mono-ethnic. They may be rich or poor or large or small, but they are mono-ethnic and relatively internally stable. On the other hand, about half of the countries on the bottom of the list are multi-ethnic shooting galleries. To be accurate, acts of terrorism do occur in the more mono-ethnic countries of the top of the list. However, these terrorist incidents are usually ethnic in origin as well. Europe's growing third world populations will probably supplant unassimilated European minorities as the most serious terrorist threat in the next century. The lesson is clear. The more mono-ethnic a European nation is, the more likely it is to be peaceful and stable. The more multi-ethnic or a European nation is, the more likely it is to experience tribal civil wars. There is simply no real arguing with this brutal fact. The lesson here is that the likelihood of a minority group having to go at a military divorce from the nation increases with its chances of success. And its chances of success increase with its percentage of the population. Consider the most multi-ethnic nation in Europe, Bosnia. Bosnia was literally born fighting in 1991, and this civil war has produced more dead than any other of the recent wars in Europe, the most multi-ethnic European nation produced the most multi-ethnic dead. Let me say that again. The most multi-ethnic European nation produced the most multi-ethnic dead. If there had been only Muslims residing in Bosnia, there would have been no civil war in Bosnia. Is America a multi-tribal country and therefore unstable? With each and every passing day, more and more Americans of all ethnic groups are perceiving their tribal affiliation as more self-definitive and more important than their common American nationality. By this measure, we are increasingly unstable. More bad news. Of the European countries, the median size of the most numerous ethnic group is 89%. In America, the most numerous ethnic group, the English-speaking whites, is only 75% of the total population and falling. By this measure, America is again not as internally stable as most European nations. Twelve European nations have primary ethnic groups that are 75% or less of their total population. Seven of these twelve nations are fighting wars, are occupied, or have internal secessionist terrorists. More bad news. Of the European countries, 
the median size of the second largest ethnic group is 5%. In America, our second largest ethnic group, the blacks, is 12%. By this measure, America is again not as stable as most European nations. Twelve European nations have secondary ethnic groups that are 12% or more of the total population. Four are fighting wars. Two are occupied by foreign troops. One is fighting internal terrorists. More bad news. Of the European countries, the median size of the third largest ethnic group is 1%. In America, our third largest ethnic group, the Hispanics, is 9%. Was that 1999 or 2007? By this measure, America is again not as stable as most European nations. Two European nations have third-ranking ethnic groups that are 9% or more of the population. One is fighting a civil war, the other occupied. More bad news. In America, 88% of the people speak the most widely used language, English as their primary language. Of the European countries, the median size of this percentage is 94%. By this measure, America is, again, not as stable as most European nations. Miami-Dade County has a special maintenance squad that cleans up dead chickens, goats, lizards, voodoo powder, and other hex items found each morning on the grounds of the county courthouse. These items are ritually deposited there by adherents of the voodoo, Santeria, and similar religions whose numbers are appearing before the court in various charges. Almost all are immigrants from the Caribbean islands. Eventually, our diversity will increase to the point that there will be no common basis for our laws. That's why America is becoming an undemocratic imperial system, and that's why we'll break up in a civil war. In this century in Europe, the core of the old Russian Empire, known as the USSR, dwindled down to about 50% Russian ethnics and broke up. At the time, multi-tribal Yugoslavia exploded in ethnic savagery. Its main ethnic groups, the Serbs, made up 36% of the population. The multi-tribal Austro-Hungarian Empire broke up after defeat in war. The multi-tribal British Empire had to give the Irish their freedom after a civil war. Tribal nationalism is clearly the driving force in European politics and produces the most stable, or, if you prefer, the least unstable arrangement. What about the other multi-ethnic countries in Europe? Why aren't they embroiled in civil war? Let's take a brief look at them. All the European countries that spun off from the old USSR have Russian minorities. Belarus, 13%, Ukraine, 22 Lithuania, 9 Latvia, 34, Estonia, 29. They are relatively peaceful countries, but live on the lip of the Russian bear. These countries have achieved stability only by acquiescing to a frog-slash-jump relationship with Russia, and civil war may yet erupt in these unhappy lands. In our case, we compare Mexico to Russia and ourselves to these unfortunate Russian-dominated countries. Both Mexico and Russia are adjacent to the country their co-ethnics reside in. This existence of a common border increases chances of ethnic conflict in three ways. It makes assimilation of the minorities more difficult. It makes further immigration more likely. 
it makes invasion more feasible. To be sure, an invasion of America by the Mexican army would fail militarily, but that's not the point. Remember von Clausewitz, quote, War is the continuation of politics by other means. Wars are fought to advance the interests of the state. If the interests of the state are immediately secured by initiating the war, regardless of the immediate military outcome, then the skeletal hand of the dead Prussian beckons his acolytes towards war. They do have a military academy in Mexico, by the way, and they do not neglect their study of Professor General von Clausewitz. The point is that such an invasion of America by Mexico would increase the internal political instability of America almost certainly to the breaking point. In a very real sense, America exists on the pleasure of Mexico just as surely as the Baltic countries exist on the pleasure of Russia. Mexico can bring down America as surely as Samson brought down the Philistine temples. America's difficulty with Hispanics in the Southwest is similar to Britain's difficulty with the Irish in Northern Ireland. It is intrusive to note or instructive to note that America and Britain are the countries in danger of losing their territory, not Mexico or Ireland. Consider this seeming paradox of two major military powers, both of them with nuclear capability, in danger of losing territory to smaller, poorer, weaker, non-nuclear neighbors. This muscle-bound importance of America and Britain highlights the inherent weakness of countries that have large internal minorities and a land border with the country of origin of those minorities. The historic remedies of this malady, if they can be thought of as remedies, are assimilation, ethnic cleansing, institution of a police state, or surrender of territory. As for assimilation, the Scots were assimilated into the United Kingdom or the English Empire. The lesson here is that entire groups can be assimilated easier than half a group. With our conquest of northern Mexico, we foolishly tried to conquer half a people, but the fires of Mexican nationalism burned on in free southern Mexico. They still burn. What about Belgium and Switzerland? They are multi-ethnic, more multi-ethnic than the United States, more multi-ethnic than many of the European countries with civil wars, yet both are peaceful and prosperous. Belgium, 55% Dutch-speaking, Flemish, 32%, French-speaking Walloons, is peaceful and prosperous and arguably a more pleasant place to live than America. It wasn't always so. The Dutch-speaking northern half of Belgium and the French-speaking southern half of Belgium should have been incorporated into Holland and France respectively during the nation-building phase that swept Europe during the Industrial Revolution. For historical difficulties too complex to fall within the scope of this book, Belgium became more or less a buffer state between France and Holland. It came into being in 1830. It was dominated in all respects by the wealthier French-speaking Walloons or the southern half of Belgium. This dominance of the French gave Belgium a certain stability, but it did not long endure. Slowly, the Dutch grew in relative numbers, political clout, and economic power. Ethnic tensions mounted after World War II, culminating in intermittent tribal riots. All three major political parties split into Dutch-speaking and French-speaking wings. The people of Belgium faced the real possibility of civil war, a civil war that would certainly have drawn in both France and Holland, 
Wisely, in 1980, constitutional reforms were enacted that recognized four semi-autonomous linguistic regions, French-speaking, Dutch-speaking, German-speaking, and a bilingual French-Dutch capital of Brussels. Each region has a sort of legislature or quote-unquote council that determines much of what happens in that region. No ethnic group is entirely satisfied with this state of affairs, but it does keep the peace. In Switzerland, 65% German, 20% French, and 4% Italian has avoided ethnic conflict, again by the simple expediency of granting much autonomy to its 26 cantons, roughly our equivalents of states, but much more independent. Germans predominate in 17 cantons, the French in four, the Italians in one. All but four of the cantons are monolingual. By and large, each ethnic group remains in its own area and manages its own affairs. In most cantons, gun ownership is little restricted, yet there are no terrorist shootings. Clearly, the Swiss government exists with the full approval of the Swiss people. Such is not the case in the emerging American empire, where private gun ownership is rapidly being rescinded as part of the transformation process as ethnic conflict spreads. Multi-ethnic and multilingual nations can and do work. However, all evidence clearly indicates they work only if each group is allowed to conduct its own affairs without undue meddling by the central government. In Switzerland, the federal government has absolute authority in matters of customs, duties and regulations, currency, post and telecommunications, and railways. The cantons have absolute authority in matters concerning police protection, social services, housing, and religion. In the categories of military affairs, unemployment, social insurance, and civil and criminal courts, the federal government has legislative authority, but implementation is left to the cantons. In the areas of taxation, road construction, health insurance, education, and training, the federal government and the cantons share power. The overall concept is that the central government handles only matters that are best handled at the federal level and that the cantons are sovereign in all other matters. America would be well advised to adopt this policy, the one our country was founded upon. The Swiss reached their current stable state only after the usual ethnic warfare. In a brief civil war in 1847, the German cantons defeated the French cantons that attempted secession. Since then, the only violence of note occurred after World War II when a French-speaking part of a predominantly German canton seceded by popular vote after years of firebombings and other relatively minor terrorist incidents. It is also interesting to note that Switzerland does allow large numbers of aliens to live and work there. About 17% of the total population is not included in the above statistics. However, when economic conditions deteriorate in Switzerland, the foreigners are expelled, providing jobs for unemployed Swiss. America should institute this policy at once and ship home all 400,000 HB1 foreign workers. Only two of Europe's heavily multi-ethnic countries have achieved peaceful internal stability, Switzerland and Belgium, and both achieved this stability by granting regional autonomy to their various ethnic groups. The United States is no longer a monotribal nation because our minorities have grown too numerous and our clumsy attempts to deal with the problem are propelling us to war. The smaller ethnic groups are now militarily strong enough 
to reassert their tribal identities. Ominously, there are growing indications that the whites are likewise returning to their tribal roots and rejecting a national identity as Americans. In both Switzerland and Belgium, the ethnic groups were geographically segregated. All these two fortunate nations had to do was simply draw up new laws formalizing regional autonomy and then ethnic autonomy. The real goal was automatically achieved. We do not enjoy such a clear pattern of geographic segregation here in America. Many areas like vast stretches of the rural Midwest are almost all white. Some, like the Mississippi Delta, are mainly black. Others, like southern Texas, are approaching 100% Hispanic populations. However, the most common pattern is that every city and town of note has ethnically exclusive areas and racially mixed areas. The stark reality is that we can probably not achieve ethnic autonomy like Switzerland or Belgium because we do not currently have sufficient geographic segregation. We may be able to achieve ethnic autonomy by allowing states to secede or otherwise opt for increased autonomy. In this case, ethnic groups would tend to move to or from such areas as suited their advantage. Diffusing our ethnic tensions by allowing states more autonomy would require a complete change in our legal system and a large-scale ethnic relocations. Although admittedly difficult and alien to our current notions of Americanism, secession and autonomy should be given serious consideration because otherwise such regional and ethnic autonomy will be achieved by civil war. It is sobering to note that in ethnic patterns, America more clearly resembles the former Yugoslavia than Belgium or Switzerland. In Belgium and Switzerland, each group was confined almost exclusively to distinct areas plus the capital city. In Yugoslavia, each group was primarily concentrated in one area, but had scattered villages of its ethnics in the primary area of the other groups. Also, almost every city and town of note had areas of ethnic group, just like America. This pattern of concentration increased demands for secession, and the isolated pockets of ethnics in the primary area of the other ethnic groups provided easy targets that fueled ethnic violence and snowballed into civil war. Like Yugoslavia, America is plagued by this highly combustible mixture of both ethnic concentration and ethnic dispersal. When will increasingly quivering America become so unstable that it erupts in civil war? Again, there is no specific formula, not mathematical equations that will give us the year. Still, one can make projections. Objective analysis tends to indicate that the danger zone for secession begins when the majority ethnic group shrinks to 90%. At about 75% where America is now, things get really serious. Red lights and sirens should be going off because America is becoming more ethnically, linguistically, and militarily unstable each day. The likelihood of an ethnic group trying armed secession increases as their percentage of the population increases. It increases if they are concentrated in one portion of the nation. It increases if the nation has a land border with the country of origin of the ethnic group. It increases if they have a different language. It increases if they have a different physical appearance. It increases if they have a different religion. It increases if they have a markedly different culture. It increases if they have historic antagonism. Are we Americans witnessing an increase in our potential for civil war or not? Is our government becoming more imperial 
or not? Consider these monumental questions and draw your own conclusions. And on that, I will end. And next week, I will begin with Chapter 16, Part 5. And so, now I'll give my voice a break and go back into the studio see if anybody's there. I've got some people in there. All right, let's take this call. Hello, Hello. who am I speaking with? My violent heart. Hi, how are you? Pretty good, how are you? I'm fine. Do you have a comment or uh, anything to uh, do, yes, add do. to? You do. Go ahead. Uh, most of the information you just read about Europe is now inaccurate. Today, most European countries are at least 25% non-white. I know you'd like to keep the focus of your shows on the U.S., but this just shows what a few years of immigration can do. That's right. I mean, this material is seriously outdated. There's yeah, a school so in Italy where um, one parent wrote her, uh, like, mayor or whatever, saying that her child was the only Italian in that entire school. Right. I've read similar stories, similar stories in the U.K., in Ireland, uh, everywhere. I mean, all of the European countries are reporting the same kinds of things. You know, I, I drove today uh, on my way home uh, through a little town that I grew up in that was all white. I didn't see a white face any fucking place. I couldn't believe it, and it's not been that long since I'd been through that town, but I happened to be driving through as the school buses were dropping all of the children off. I could not believe it, truly. I've noticed something strange in the last few years. There's been many times when I'm out driving on um, some random highway, I look over to an off-ramp that would lead to a small town, and I see giant concrete walls being built. And I see these walls always around um, a section of a highway that was recently reduced from, like, four lanes to only two. It's like the government's trying to force or trap those towns and make it impossible for those people to flee or uh, get, like, trucks or whatever to help them. I don't doubt that. I don't doubt that this government, I don't doubt that they're not doing everything in their power to make what's coming as bad as it can possibly be. So all you have to do is look around. I've asked um, some people from those towns, you know, what's with the walls? Why are they being built? And they said, oh, uh, the mayor said it's uh, to block the noise from the highways. I'm like, really? Mm -hmm. You've had that highway for all these decades and you just now got tired of the noise? You know, back in the 90s, uh, well, the 90s, I guess, the theory, uh, because they were doing things like that in various places, of course, there was um, the NAFTA highway uh, in the early part, you know, early 2000s, but there was always the theory uh, flying around that that they were building the walls so that people couldn't um, access the smaller exits, and they were closing off a lot of the smaller exits so that... um, you know, I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, ma- mass immigration patterns and that kind of thing. Uh, right. I think it has some feasibility, but, you know, certainly uh, something along those lines. I mean, you, you know, you, four-wheelers aren't, aren't going to help you if, if you've got to crash through a wall. To get, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh-huh. that's kind of how that works. Um, well, I've heard that um, a lot of those small towns, when they close off the highway, it drives up the town because all the tourism and, uh, people passing in to get gas or visit their 
restaurants, whatever. It just drives it up. Yeah. But they're probably doing that to force more people into the big towns. They're all diverse and shit. I think there are multiple reasons uh, for things being done. Uh, uh, you know, uh, they're well studied. Uh, they've got lots of you know non-government organizations that uh, you know that work in you know with the think tanks. You know, uh, they come up with these plans. I mean, you know, you've got the the Brookings Institute, and you've got the oh, I can't when I want to pull them out of my head, I can't. Uh, but you know, they're the big think tanks. Anyway, so. Uh, that's what they do. That's what the think tanks do. I mean, they're plotting all of this stuff, and uh, it's, uh, that's what we're seeing, truly. Um, you talked about Ferguson earlier. A few days ago, I was in a public place, and Fox News was on their TV. Uh, the host or whatever was talking to some, it was a black dude, imagine that, and they were talking about this autopsy of Mike Brown that was just came out. Um, now, I've heard that the autopsy that the prosecutor did uh, prove that Mike Brown was a criminal and all that, like you said. But the autopsy they mentioned on Fox News said, oh, no, he was innocent. He was shot in the back, all that crap. Uh, Then a few hours later, the news reported that the niggers were rioting again. Yeah, clear that the mainstream media is trying to provoke them. I urge listeners to write letters to the heads of um, any mainstream media like Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, and just politely ask them to stop provoking the blacks. And don't forget to write to the reporters, staffs, and anchors, too, because if they know what their bosses are up to, they might, you know, say something. Now, I'm not good at uh, writing or public speaking, but I'm sure no, if no enough of it, us try, we can no, get them to there's stop. No, point. there's no point. It's an agenda. It's an agenda. It's proceeding uh, according to plan. There's not any writing or campaigning that you can do that's going to stop that because this is not a government. It's not a functioning government. We are, uh, we are in uh, some kind of a, a military sequestered uh, limbo land. And uh, the sooner people get that in their heads, that there's no functioning system here working for us, uh, the better it will be for everyone. And um, well, so, there's always ways to send them messages. Yeah, them well, stop. messages. Yeah, well, I, I, well, I'm not going to say anything about messages. I know the kind of messages that need to be sent, and uh, it's not right, yep. you know, to anybody. Um, a few days ago in Ferguson, many Christians, um, priests, and church leaders went to all the white cops and only the white cops and asked them to repent for their racist actions. Oh, sure. They did it's this all about while, sure. Yeah. So uh, whatever right. messages you try and send, be sure to send it to the churches too. Oh, no kidding. No kidding. Okay. All right, uh, my violent heart, I'm gonna put you on hold for a minute and bring up another caller. Okay. I don't have a lot of time left. Oh, thank you so much for your comments. Always good. Oh, one. you're welcome. Uh huh. Okay. Hello, who do I have on the line? Hey, it's Bill. Hey, there you are. Yeah, I just wanted to say something about the the letter writing. I'm with you on that. You know, if we're talking about 50 years ago, <laughs> and yeah. it didn't work then, but uh, and and there was millions of people going to do that, or maybe even tens of thousands. But since there's not, that's like writing your congressman, and yeah, that that can be effective, or or sometimes getting in touch with advertisers about things that you don't like. If there was enough people doing that, that would have an effect, but it's just not going to happen. So I consider that to be kind of la-la land, but 
people can do what they want to do. I would say anonymously do that if you're trying to stay lone wolf. I mean, you don't need to let uh, everyone know, <laughs> you know, what your views are on certain things. And when we talk about the message, well, to me, the message that will work is not going to be involving words, whether they're vocal, you know, audio-type sounds or in pen form or pencil or crayon or typewriter or Internet uh, messages. That's not the kind of messages that they need to get or that will have any effect, and I think we all know what kind will. So that's my take on messages and writing letters. The pen, they say, is mightier than the sword. Well, that's a crock of shit. But the pen can be mighty if it motivates people to pick up the sword. Then when it comes to the numbers you gave on the Spics, uh, not the Hispanics, the Spics, they were at 9% then. So he was probably, uh, unless he had updated stats that they do, maybe looking at the 90 census. But by the 2010 census, they were already at 14%. And that's not counting tens of millions of illegals, and it's counting some whites, you know, as as spics. So just think of that. And then go back to 1960 when they were under 2% and just look at the massive growth of those damn spics. I mean, it's it's insane. Yeah, it's uh, it truly is. Again, I, I wish he would have noted when he did the updates uh, or when he's got figures in there, you know, what exactly he updated. Um, but they're they're looking like 1997 numbers to me, and that's what, right. what I think about it. But, yeah, and as far as writing anything, uh, what a waste of time. I mean, we, we don't have a government. So we've got this this beast of a system that we're trying to navigate in, and we've got non-functionaries all around us. And uh, right. so there's just no, yeah, there's, there's, well, there's there, no one to write There to. was a, a writing kind of campaign that is more along the uh, more effective way of doing it. Uh, if you remember back after 9-11, <laughs> the, uh, I think it involved something involving was it that band anthrax or was it something else? But in any case, we, you know, as it turns out, we know that was a kite Jew operation anyway. You know, that kind of thing. I, I won't put you on hold. I'll just leave you on the line and we'll bring Norman up. Hi. How are you doing this evening? Hi. Good, good. Yeah, uh, Bill mentioned in the chat uh, there are hundreds of millions of whites and the muds will wither on the vine once their population explosions are no longer subsidized via aid trade. Well... I'm, uh, and I, you know, we've talked about this several times. You know, we don't know exactly how long the Cold War is going to ha- last, how long it's going to stay hot, and I don't know if this is what Bill was referring to, but uh, many, along with Orion, were talking in the chat about, um, you know, fortifying your home, making, uh, you know, maybe concrete or brick uh, in your windows, and making sure that you're safe. But I think also we have to look into. How can we grow and prosper within this chaotic mud system? Because we're not quite sure how long it's going to stay this way. Uh, so I think um, we might want to consider the possibility of a prolonged, uh, you know, stretched out second civil war that is just a cold war. And you know, because that's a possibility. I think there's a lot of technology that allows the kikes to keep this system going along, even with the incompetence of the muds, niggers, and the CISOs. And some of them are competent enough to 
with uh, you know technology making so many things automated, you know they're competent enough, which isn't a very high standard, but to you know keep the system just bumbling along. Well, you know, and I, I've uh, expressed my view on you know the system. I think the economy will you know uh, will tread along, but uh, I think that this will take a little time uh, to unfold. And I will tell you that barricading yourself and putting concrete uh, in your windows is not a really good thing to do. <laughs> I've been there, done that, and so uh, things that to be deconstructed. But on that note, I'm going to say uh, thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to the callers and commenters. Thanks, Norman, for calling in. Your comments are always great. Uh, remember that it's all about the 14 words. We must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. Rahoa. Will 
searching for patterns and looking for signs Your life a construction one day you will see Through the illusion and into the dream The cauldron's brewing magic she will give to you. You will dance in the eye of the storm, your carrot when children, the cauldron born. You can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.